0: So don't talk to me, bitch. I'm bad. with you mad? when you want to be? a dick. I'm a boss. You see, count six-figure stacks, and it's all for me. It's big. These hoes need to fall back. talk loud in my area. So welcome to Heidi Matthews on Demand, the new podcast that sounds like a brothel. My name's Heidi Matthews. I am a professor of law at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University in Toronto, Ontario, which is, yes, in Canada. This podcast is going to do a bunch of stuff. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be about the intersection of law, sex, culture, war, violence, matrimony, (laughs) not matrimony. It might be reverent. It's going to be irreverent a lot of the time. We've got film correspondence, foreign correspondence, all the academics that are rolling through the halls of Osgoode Hall Law School, and of course, my new American husband and super producer, David Slavik. Today, for the first episode, we've got an interview with Mark Tushnet of Harvard Law School, He's going to talk to us about critical legal studies, law, and activism. Mark talks to us about the need to inculcate a double consciousness with respect to the ideal and what's practically possible in left movements, in particular, how they relate to the use of the technologies of law. Secondly, David and I have a pretty funny chat about the Elsa arrest controversy. Uh, Stay tuned to hear what that's all about. If you want to hear more about the pod, you can find it at hmodpod.com. That's H-M-O-D-P-O-D.com. Or find me on Twitter at heidi underscore underscore matthews if you use one in underscore you will arrive at a sex bot without further ado here you go h mod I am incredibly privileged um, and thankful to have Professor Mark Teshna joining us uh, for this section. He's William Nelson Cromwell, professor of law at Harvard Law School. And I wanted this to be a bit of a conversation between us in terms of unpacking really on a quite basic level what critical legal studies means for left political action in 2019. I know that that's a very broad Question, (laughs) but um, but I think it's really worth it's really worth um, unpacking in 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 light of uh, current events in the United States, but abroad. And I think your position as someone who does has been a founder of sort of the movement, Mm -hmm. but also thinking very carefully about uh, the utility of law, legal argumentation, and actually using rights language to achieve political outcomes um, may uh, not actually and made some instances maybe counterproductive. And I want to sort of start a conversation then about, in particular, what that means today. Yeah,
1: of course. So let me just start and then we can pursue the conversation where you think it uh, should go. Um, I would start uh, in talking about um, the utility of legal argument to achieve progressive ends uh, with what the critical legal studies folks uh Ended up calling the indeterminacy thesis the argument. That argument is that um, the take any subject you want: freedom of expression, uh, gender equality, LGBTQ rights. Take any area you want, and look at the uh, uh, call them legal resources that are available in the do- domain. The the Texts, the doctrines, the case law, and so on. Um, Just whatever those materials are. The indeterminacy argument is that those materials uh, can can be used to generate essentially any result, whatever. So a pro free speech uh, position or an anti free speech position. A uh, pro uh, uh, gender equality or an anti gender equality position, and the when that is done well—that's an important qualification—the um, arguments for or against are equally defensible as a matter of law. Uh, um, good lawyers won't be able to say this anti-LGBTQ argument uh, is legally defective. They can say we disagree with it, but they won't be able to identify flaws in the legal reasoning that produces it. Now, I want to say, fill out just one point that I went over. I said, when done well. So, it, it can be the case that you know, uh, progressive lawyers can literally outlaw the other side by by being better than they, the other side is. But, uh, and of course they can be outlawed if they're not so good, which is why progressive lawyers have to be, you know, good lawyers independently. Um, uh, but, uh, but it's not the sort of intrinsic quality of the arguments that uh, that carries the day. It's that you just have one group of lawyers who are better than an, another group of lawyers at figuring out how to deploy the arguments in support of the result. Given two sort of equally talented lawyers, they can they should be able to essentially argue to a draw on the legal. Uh, 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 domain uh, now what one implication of that is that um, although progressives can win legal victories by as I put it outlawyering the other side um, there's no systematic way of uh, guaranteeing that Uh, um, You you can win a Supreme Court victory on some issue, uh, but uh, uh, why you do so is fundamentally not because you've figured out the right legal arguments, the the correct arguments. uh, and, and I should say, uh, um, and I think I'll stop and then see where you want to go with this. Um, even after winning a victory, uh, there are always, I think of them as residual domains uh, uh, where the same structure of argument can reproduce itself. And even though you've won victory sort of at the core, you can still lose all the stuff, uh, all the residual stuff. Uh, and um, the effect of that can be to narrow the core quite dramatically. So it looks like you won something significant, but in fact all you won was this particular case.
0: And I think maybe one of the almost paradigmatic, or at least pretty important examples of that would be uh, the sort of Winning of the right to choose, as it were, which, as we know, is not actually what would what, what happen in Roe v. Wade, but sort of the um, what looked like a, a really big and progressive victory at the time became susceptible to being subsequently whittled down by the courts. And now, um, really the political capacity from a material point of view to obtain a right to choose again, not that that was included in but is, is, is actually really severely in question and, and in many parts of the United States not available anymore. And I think that, that in particular for for progressives today, it's very difficult to accept that the decision in Roe um, might not have been the best way to go about achieving the material outcomes they wanted to. And I think even more than that, I think the worry is that if we introduce that element the, the skepticism about the sort of privacy-based rights claim that was pursued in Roe. Then we're going to risk. I think this is what leftists and progressives in general worry about today: that we're going to risk um, uh, uh, undermining or, or risk weakening the, the left position even further. And so somehow we, you know, have to hold on to the one thing that we do have, which is 1973. And i wonder if you could.
1: Yeah, so so so, uh, Wade is, is is I think uh, a decent example. I, I just and I've written in, in this vein using Roe as an example. I've come to think that it might be sufficiently sort of idiosyncratic that maybe people like me ought to shift to some other uh, core kind of use some other. Uh, Case or problem as the core example. But since I have thought about it in the context of Roe, let me just say a little uh, about it. Um, uh, first, uh, sort of given the indeterminacy idea and the question of eating away at the edges with all the residual questions, uh, um, winning the legal victory is the first but not the last step. In order to sustain the legal victory, you have to uh, mobilize continuing, I would say, political support for the outcome. So just the example of the United States, which doesn't generalize but uh, uh, works as an illustration, um, the one of the mechanisms by which Roe has been uh, eroded has been through judicial appointments, which are made by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And unless you win the presidency and get the right kind of people appointed, uh, then uh, you're not going to be able to sustain the, the victory in Roe. Uh, there are similar mechanisms elsewhere uh, for... Uh, that show why continuing political support is needed, okay, that's so that's one point. Uh, second, though, um, there's a chance uh, uh, that having won the legal victory, the supporters of the right relax politically. They say uh, we've gotten. X, the right to choose or uh, same-sex marriage or whatever. We've gotten that from the courts. Uh, and so we don't have to um, uh, continue to mobilize politically. Or we can mobilize politically on other issues. So we're going to drop out of politics, but we don't, we're not going to worry about this particular issue anymore. That is... Can be uh, an error uh, because again, there might be a counter mobilization uh, to eat eat away at the decision. Yeah, no, you fight against that, but if you lose, you'll say to yourself, Well, there's always the courts, they're going to back us up, Um, and you know, sometimes they will, and sometimes, but the effect is to sort of diminish the investment in political uh, mobilization in support of the thing that you already want. Um, now, one thing that is uh, uh, worth stressing is that a declaration from a high court that there really is a fundamental human right in the premises uh, can be valuable politically. Uh, uh, when... Uh, somebody sort of moves against the right to choose or LBTQ rights in the legislature, you can say no that's wrong uh, and, um, and and we know it's wrong because the Supreme Court has says there's a fundamental right here and so there's this great quotation from Martin Luther King uh, to the effect that it, I can't reproduce it but it's you know if we are wrong, then uh, the Supreme Court is wrong. If we are wrong, uh, the Constitution is wrong. If we are wrong, the God Almighty is wrong. Uh, And and that's a very powerful rhetoric that he's able to invoke the court and the Constitution in this kind of way. Uh, But it's invoking it in a political context, not in the context of, well, we can win this case.
0: Absolutely, and so I, I was re-listening. It uh, was Martin Luther King Day just a few days ago, and I was actually re-listening to a couple of his speeches, and was just really struck by by the notion. I, at one point, he he repeated in some interview in the fifties that you know rights are rights are inside of us, and you know it's just for the courts to recognize them. I and we all know, and you don't have to be a student of law or a professor of law to understand that um, you know that's a questionable claim. But what's really valuable is the rhetorical sort of pull the real strength behind um, that sort of rights claim that persists sort of uh, in the political universe, in the media universe, in the discursive universe, sort of regardless of whether or not that right actually finds a kind of legal purchase that we want in X, Y, or Z particular circumstance. So I struggle myself like, with how, how do we think through sort of um, making sense of that disjuncture Right? The idea that rights and the claim to rights, um, even when those rights might be uh, uh, on slippery footing or maybe not perfectly realized in the sort of formally legal sphere, are nevertheless quite politically important when we want to make claims and generate support for further legislative action or other kinds of, of political mobilization. So, as people who you know work with the law but are also deeply skeptical of the law in the ways that we've already started to elaborate, how do we make sense of the idea that um, rights talk can be quite, let's say, culturally useful while also um, dangerous in the ways that we've had it?
1: Yeah, so uh, he, here uh, I, I, I invoke uh, an idea um, that are articulated by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in a different context, but he talked about having a double consciousness. So you have to have a double consciousness, one about your work as a progressive lawyer, uh, and one about your progressivism broadly understood. Uh, and And they will, you know when you when, when you're in consciousness one, You'll uh, think, you know, and believe, and need to believe that the legal arguments you're making are compelling arguments. Uh, and when you're in consciousness too, you'll say those arguments are strategically useful for the following ways. There are strategic undersides to them, and we also we have to worry about what our opponents are going to say and so on. Um, but it's just you, you you know uh, you live with this dual consciousness, uh, and and Du Bois you know, du Bois position was that African Americans did that as part of their lives, and and so it's you know it's dual. It, it <laughs> does it doesn't cause sort of schizophrenia. It's not like you are two people, uh, one coming out and then another coming out. Right. It's, it's dual.
0: That's so helpful, and I and I think that I've I've tried to suggest the same to my own first year law students. Especially, I had them do their first mooting exercise two weeks ago, and and they were you know really struck by the the sense in which they became fully, almost you know seamlessly moved into the new position of the lawyer, advocating a position that they may or may not like. And then, but the one that struggles so much with with maintaining something like a dual consciousness. What do you tell your students? This is a very self-interested question yeah, on my yeah. part, but what
1: do you tell your students about how to do that? Um, I don't often talk to them expressly about it. Um, the uh, it's, for, for me, um, let, let me back up. I'll go back to the beginning, the discussion of indeterminacy. So that ultimately, that position ultimately rests on a jurisprudential view that I personally associate with Carl Well and it's probably other people could be part of it but uh, and, and the view is that students come in thinking that the law in quotation marks is there it's a set of rules, we just have to learn what they are and we have to learn how to how to uh, integrate them, in, and so on. Um, the indeterminacy position, which I think is right, rests on the proposition, in my view, that the law is just a series of what I call, uh, derived from the well, and moves. They're maneuvers that you make in turn, you know, for lawyers, you know, distinguishing one case from another. Or analoging, analogizing one case to another, uh, and there, there's a, st- there's a more or less standard set of moves, uh, but learning what those moves are, and learning how to do them, uh, is really difficult. And so what I stress is, look, what you're, what, what, what you need to learn is how to make the moves. Once you've learned that, you've learned the law, and then you can make your, you can work for whoever you want to or whoever you're required to. Uh, and in that work, you will deploy the legal learning that you've gotten. Now, I hope you make a decision to work for people who will do good rather than bad. But fundamentally, I don't think that's my job, you know, to tell them where to go to work. Um, so that's it. I mean, it's not it's you know uh, if' you, it's another way, another way of putting this is um, if there's this dual consciousness, if you if you go to work for somebody who you deeply disagree with um, and in consciousness one as a lawyer, you're really doing a good job, you're making the moves, all the sort, of, sort of stuff. Um, in consciousness, too, you'll sort of feel yourself in in, in bad faith uh, because you're doing this stuff over here that you fundamentally don't believe in or fundamentally are opposed to. Uh, and then the dual consciousness is going to cause you a problem. Um, I, the footnote here is, uh, at least in the United States, I don't know if it's true in, in Canada, uh, uh, levels of substance abuse among lawyers are extremely high, mm-hmm. dramatically high. I mean, it's not everybody, or not probably not even fifty percent, but it's significantly higher than in uh, other professions. And part of that is from this dual consciousness and bad faith uh, action. Awesome. I think. I think.
0: Yeah. No, and levels are extremely high, in and, and suicide. And I think this is true throughout. You know, it's mm-hmm. in. I I've spent some time. In, in England as well as a, as a postdoc it's clearly the case there. Um, and certainly, <laughs> certainly government cutbacks don't hate that situation. Um, so how can I, can I ask you a little bit? So about the dual consciousness function for those of us who, for whom it's easier to think we're already on the right side. In other words, we are working for the ACLU or doing, you know, other sorts of, of, uh, of NGO based or, or, you know, working for a pro- progressive government or that sort of thing. Because I find it, it quite, it's a lot, it, it, it's, it's too simplistic in, you know, in, as a law professor for me to, to talk to students about, you know, working for, the, for labor side or not labor side and what's good and what's bad. And, and it creates the idea in their minds, I think, that doing social justice work does mean working for the right people or on behalf of the right causes. And I think you know, part of what we've been discussing is that even what critical legal studies offers us is a way of thinking through the complexity of work, even when it's done in what we would be given to think is a, is a good uh, a good place and for a good cause.
1: Now, I'm not sure this is responsive to your concern, but as you were uh, talking, I was reminded of a... Um, speak speech that Thurgood Marshall made in which he talks about believing that the Constitution is the vehicle for racial justice, uh, and he says and, – and, and that's what he'd worked for his entire life – and he says, I know it's not true, and I know that it's never going to be true, but uh, that's how – we have to uh, uh, live our lives in his context, live our lives as lawyers Uh, and and that's it's it's this acknowledgement that he knows it's not true and won't ever be true Uh, that's the duality uh, coming out uh, again my my sense is that um, many, maybe even most sophisticated progressive lawyers have that understanding that they don't see their work as culminating in um, ultimate justice or something like that it's uh, freedom is a constant struggle you know uh, 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 one thing about socialism it provides steady work you know thats sort of the struggle for socialism is steady work um, You know, sophisticated people understand that, and there are times when you you see people who are pretty sophisticated putting it in pejorative terms, mouthing the line that the Constitution is the U.S. Constitution is, you know, perfect, and all we need to do is implement. And uh, you know that when you when they get off the you know speaker's stand, they don't really believe that. and they will say, yeah, but that's, you know, for, for the function of talking to the public, uh, that's better than saying, yeah, the Constitution's imperfect. And, you know, we, yeah, and we really can't say that our arguments are sort of transcendentally better than the counter arguments. But, you know, it's part of an overall legal strategy, the legal political strategy. You make strategic decisions, and they're, and they're they're fine. They're not in bad faith. They're not trying to delude people or anything like that. Um, there's a core component that is true always. So,
0: so that's fascinating. Thank you. Is it? So I'm wondering for for somebody if from your perspective as somebody who's you know a left politically aligned. Teaching, spent your whole life teaching and working within the law from a, a skeptical and critical point of view. Is it a bad strategic move to generate a sense of distrust or acceptance of indeterminacy as a general political matter?
1: Um, I understand the argument that it is, it's been made uh, ever since we started talking about critical legal studies it actually was made in connection with the legal realists two generations before us. I, I think of critical legal studies as uh, an, uh, 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 an updated but not obviously improved version of American legal, legal realism. Uh, it's just for me, it's a, a new label uh, for it, uh, maybe with more explicit uh, acknowledgement of a particular set of political commitments. Um, so that argument has been around. Uh, and uh, there are moments when uh, it, it, you think, yeah, maybe that's right. Uh, maybe these are, we ought to, you though know, these are these critically the studies arguments are good correct arguments as a matter of theory, maybe we ought to tone them down or so on given the current political circumstances. but, Uh, I have been struck. So I started teaching in 1973 uh, and started doing CLS stuff in the late 1970s. Um, I don't believe my wife thinks I've become less uh, leftist. I don't think I have. Um, uh, But what I have been struck by is that I've been... Internally, I think I've been say I think I've been saying pretty much the same thing for forty years, and I am struck by how much what I have been saying is, in some ways, the conventional wisdom now. You know, the, we sort of prevailed. And it's it's weird. Uh, so there there are uh, now in the United States, Trumpism, you know, just uh, has had a very substantial effect on on liberal centrist liberal legal thinkers. Um, uh, um, uh, but it's it, it it is weird that things that I was was saying twenty years ago and were thought to be um, way on the fringes. Um, I'll say something. are now no longer on the fringes. They're not at the center of the discussion, but they're now part of reasonable leftist discourse in a way that they weren't before. So so there's this skepticism uh, about the utility of making these arguments. That may be right at particular moments, but for the course of my career, it seems to me net better to have kept this line of argument going than to have dropped it under the pressure of circumstances.
0: So I'll ask you, we um, only have a few more minutes, but when you mentioned Trump have, as having had a, a significant impact on the thought of central centrist, rather, liberal legal thinkers. And What do you mean by that specifically?
1: Um, uh, the, the, uh, it's become clear to lots of people that, um, the other legal arguments that are not intrinsically worse, they're politically worse, but they're not defective uh uh when when made by competent people. Now, you know, partly Trump's lawyers are not all that competent, but so I, I've just been writing an article opinion. It's fundamentally a racist opinion, uh, but it's fundamentally a racist opinion. So you know it takes a lot of work to uh expose the the political uh, expose the fact that these legal arguments are fundamentally political, um, and and the the disillusionment with law as the as, as the recourse is uh, as as the ultimate defense um, it is um, spreading significantly. Now, I have to say the one one things that one thing that centrist liberals will say is well it's not the law that's defective it's just that we got this bunch of radical conservatives on the Supreme Court because of cheating basically in various ways uh, and and you know when you cheat you know you can win but it doesn't cast down on the law uh, uh, we'll see what happens we uh, <laughs> Whether the court persists in you know as it seems to be doing uh, and and what the effects of that will be the the reason I raise this is the the you know uh, um, they won they the conservatives won control of the court by cheating, therefore the fact that we can't win these cases in the court doesn't cast doubt on our claim that the law is ultimately on our side. The only thing that would cast doubt on that is if a fair-minded court ruled against us, and we just don't have that. Um, we'll see what happens as the court settles in, in into its sort of very conservative positions.
0: Mm-hmm. We already saw the uh, allowance of the trans ban go into effect two days ago. So, yeah, yeah, I was very struck by watching. I watched put myself through the. <coughs> Terror of watching the entirety of the Kavanaugh hearings, and before before the sexual assault issue came up uh, and led to the second um, the second bout of hearings, I was just really struck by the persistence of the Democrats on the committee, and particularly the diet tribe that Blumenthal went on about the rule of law and how uh, you know various aspects of the proceedings, including delay or non disclosure of of materials, so very formalistic arguments, but also more substantive references to Kavanaugh's record were actually being couched pretty firmly in standard, you know, centrist rule of law discourse. Right. And I wonder whether, and it just seemed, I think it was obvious that that fell so flat and was so politically ineffective, or it should be obvious to those who are progressive or left that that really fell flat. Um,
1: so I, I, I think actually you can't disentangle the second set of hearings from the first ones uh, well, uh, uh I, I think one of the effects of the second call it sexual harassment set of hearings was to cast retrospectively light on the claims about rule of law uh, and cast out upon the claims. Uh, um, so I think that I think what, the, the hearings were in this vein incredibly significant in terms of shaping, or contributing to uh, the understanding of legal liberals about what the law is.
0: And then we were left, that's so fascinating, and then we were left um, after all the hearings that concluded with this, I mean, my, my own sense was that I was left with this, um, the failure of liberal legalism to have any purchase, but also the failure of the political position itself taken, right? So what happened was that the sexual assault hearings ended up being a kind of Me Too-based Sort of general political position that didn't have any foundation in the law, but then also didn't win the day politically. And I wonder, I mean, what's your is your take on uh, the Democrats' failure? Was that a bad calculation for them to take that route, or was it simply that they they didn't have the power to win? But it was nevertheless a good a good strategic
1: move. Mm. Um, I'm I'm more inclined to think that it was the right path to take that just didn't have the the votes behind them. Uh, Although I have to say, one, another thing that the uh, hearings expose is actually, it, this is outside my role as a CLS person or legal theorist, but uh, um, quite disturbing, uh, which is the existence of what I've come to think of as uh, uh, um, completely separate epistemology, epistemology, epistemological universes. So everybody saw the same facts. Everybody saw, you know, uh, and there was completely polarized understandings of what had actually occurred. Um, uh, uh, you know, either he had grossly assaulted her or uh, she had made it up. Not, maybe, yes, yeah, she'd been assaulted, but by somebody else, uh, a little of that. But it was like there were these two things, there were these two worlds. And if you were a Democrat, you were in World one world, and if you were a Republican, you were in another world. And if you can't get agreement on sort of what the world is like, it's very hard to figure out how you're going to have a decent politics.
0: Right. that's so insightful and I'll, I'll, this will be my last question but I think we've seen a real entrenchment or sort of uh solidification of that position with the um what is now being called the magazines confrontation with the Native American
1: yeah right so Asian that Olives. that right that's been on my mind because that's just exactly that's the second recent example that that uh, right. that has, has you know obsessed me it's just Either nothing happened, or they were grossly disrespectful.
0: And so I know this is a, it's a horrible question, but it's it's one interview <laughs> technique to offer the ask the, the unanswerable <laughs> question. I mean, what, what as either from a legal or just from a political perspective, or some, some unison of the two, uh, what do we do with that?
1: Yeah, so I I don't. It, this is not anything that I have any you know, special insight on, uh, and I am uh, you know nearing retirement, and so the sort of. Um, you, you, so you need you, to tell you, me you, what to do. <laughs> you, well, well, soldier on. I, I use this line from from Irving Howe earlier about uh, working for socialism. And it, yeah, the, his line is. The nice thing about working for socialism is that it provides steady work. You know, you always have to do it. Uh, And that's sort of encouraging. Fundamentally, it's encouraging. Now, you know, at moments when you do it, you know, you get assassinated and that's not good. Uh, Or, you know, you get tar. I've been uh, targeted of uh, hate mail and various things, and, and, and it's you know, I I brush it off, but uh, some of it comes to the house, and my wife is disturbed by that, and that's disturbing. Uh, but you know, what can you do? Just keep on.
0: Mark Touchman, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been just a delight.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: think of the top five funniest professions, we don't often think of police. Police in the United States have often had a a troubled past. There's been a lot of issues with um, police humor being directed at uh, black and brown people in the United States and often being sexualized. Um, Recently in McLean, Illinois, there was a joke that was posted by their police department where Elsa was arrested for causing the polar vortex. Uh, for those of you who may not know who Elsa is because you don't have children or if you uh, ban Disney movies like my mother did when I was a kid, you will know that Elsa is the main character from Frozen. She is famous for being able to have the power to freeze water, snow, basically control the elements of the winter. She's
0: yeah. a Frozen ice queen.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> the movie is called Frozen. No, absolutely. <laughs> I think Heidi makes a great point. Is that it's essentially Elsa is kind of known for being frigid. <laughs> and that, and it essentially, it's a it's a it's a parable that's both empowering to young women in a lot of ways, but also sort of symbolic of a of a woman who's not really opening up uh, to men.
0: Have you seen Frozen? I have seen. Oh, Frozen. so now I'm interested. Is there um, a love interest in Frozen? I can't remember. Actually, I remember. Oh, no, we yeah, have it's been, been a long time. As it were. So what, what like, is, does her heart get melted? Does she, gets she melted. become less? <laughs> and she, Does she become less frigid or less inclined to turn men towards? I mean, what's actually to get
2: to that point? Okay, uh, actually to get to that point, and I think that's an important point. It is the it serves as the backdrop to this entire exercise. Yeah, is that um, I've talked to many of my male friends who have kids, and um, but what I have heard is that Elsa pretty effing hot. Yeah, this I'm repeating what they said. Oh, I said
0: they're
2: wholesome dads. Okay, wholesome dads. Okay, not all of them are wholesome dads, but the ones I talked.
0: Right. Uh huh.
2: But in this instance, and to to get. To the point mclean police department actually was repeating on a common
0: theme that's been used well can i actually times? read the arrest like so the post from the facebook page absolutely so the mclean police department which is in illinois and i guess illinois has been suffering probably even as bad as we have been here in toronto in the last couple of weeks but <laughs> yeah so they went to their facebook page and they wrote quote due to the all caps extreme weather Sorry, extreme cold weather, all criminal activity and acts of stupidity and foolishness has been cancelled. So there's a grammatical error there. And then dot, 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 even ELSA has been placed under arrest with all caps, no bond, until further notice.
2: Do you know how I know you're from Ontario? Or at least you I live not, in Ontario?
0: From, I'm not I'm not from... Do you know how I know
2: you live in Ontario? No. Rather than highlighting the fact there's police brutality, you're worried about the
0: spelling? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of brutality here, too. So we noticed that this morning, and then I went on Twitter... And wrote what I'm pretty proud of I have to say <laughs> it, was, it was disturbing but not I mean, it was disturbing in the sense that you know not from an overtly you know we're not taking a me too position or a sex negative position here but we were worried about this in some way and we wanted to try and um, figure out what was going on and so in the tweet I said you know, I quoted the CBS News tweet about Elsa and I said um, there's a lot going on here so several options one eroticization of arrest or playing out of arrest fantasy I think for any of you spent any time I'm watching pornography. Um, Arrest fantasy uh, is sort of maybe a form, is it a form of bondage? I guess it would be sort of a form of bondage fantasy. It's a control fantasy. Can you confirm that? It's It's a control control fantasy. fantasy. Thanks, David. Okay. It also, ouch, eroticizes, David pinched me. It also (laughs) eroticizes the police state or at very least promotes it I would say and also infantil it makes it seem uh, more you know less sort of threatening. A, less threatening in the sense that policemen are good and children should trust them whatever eroticizes a children's cultural icon I think that's sort of beyond question it plays out a cop rape fantasy also pretty beyond question more concerningly you know I think from our perspective is that it's wasting public resources in the sense that the police got together and staged this elaborate arrest scene and it's a sort of climb Climate change denial, and then some people went on and responded saying there are other other worrying aspects to this, such as the feminization of nature, etc. um Which is a feminization
2: of nature, isn't it? I thought that was a good one. That's one of the least of my worries. Was it? Okay,
0: yeah, Yeah, Gaia, etc. Not to get yeah too off topic, but 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 then we we got a bit further into it and we discovered a few things. So this isn't actually the, the the pictures that CBS News had tweeted. As being related to the Clean po- to Police Department in Illinois aren't ac- weren't actually taken by them? Clean And this is not a department.
2: local station, I want to clarify. This is CBS News National. Right. Which has, um, I believe, like, so it's, it's a, let's see, you have 6.6 million followers?
0: Yeah, more than Trump. Yeah. A lot, significantly more. Yeah, yeah okay. And so it turns, so, so then there was, so not then David, isn't it? No. It doesn't matter. So then David went. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to get Trump to weigh in on this. So David went to Elsa. Very bad. Wet (laughs) Elsa. Very hot. Very hot. Very bad. Looks like my daughter. Grab her by the pussy. Okay, so you went to the McLean Police Department website page. Or sorry, Facebook page. And they had gotten some blowback. But it was not the blowback you today, would expect. But it was not the blowback you would expect. and yeah. So they had gotten... People were upset because they had essentially... The McLean Police Department this today had essentially um, plagiarized or lifted yeah. the photos from the Hanahan... Yeah. police department uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. in South Carolina front that and this happened yeah. in 2015, I think. Yeah. And it turns out that the photos that were that CBS had actually shown had ha- taken place mm-hmm. some years ago in Hanahan and then the McLean police department apologized for that and David, do you want to read their apology? Yeah.
2: So absolutely and I want to just clarify that none of this has to do with any of the, the things that we addressed. And also, it's a good example of the reactions being cop fans acting like cop fans and that is like, hey, how dare you steal from another cop? Rather than the the fact that it was an abuse of police power address. So attention. Good morning. Ooh, very, very fancy. Very official. Uh, Apparently there's been an uproar of our most recent post of the Elsa character being taken into custody. It's actually being taken into custody. The
0: grammatical errors.
2: It's it's very poorly written. Yeah. Please note, we have posted (laughs) these pictures along with an explanation in reference to the very severe, dangerous, cold weather that we are experiencing in Illinois. Very cold. I
0: mean, maybe they're just like literally pussies in, yeah. down in the states, and I mean, you can attest to that. What's like, colder, it's just right? Yeah, it's colder, I mean, right? I, mean in, I guess. In in and the, the
2: rest is colder Either. than it is that's an aside. Right now. Go
0: ahead. Yeah. The
2: pictures were actually taken by Hanahan Police Department in South Carolina that we found on the internet, which is actually untrue because it was actually not the Hanahan Police Department; it was a photography company that took them. So okay. they're wrong there too. We were looking for pictures to show how cold it was getting, <laughs> and wanted to do something to rise up everyone's spirit we're rising up spirits here. Yeah. We um, can't we can't take credit for the pictures. Sorry about the confusion. We had no intention of taking credit for the pictures posted and we're just trying to lighten the mood for everyone. Again, we apologize for any confusion. Please be safe, stay warm and God bless. We just posted the bondage porn for your enjoyment and not for any other reason.
0: Right. And and so and then it got but it gets even deeper. So the whole Elsa arrest um fantasy <laughs>
2: which is playing across Uh, on youtube if you could yeah
0: so we'll get to that in a second but like it started in harlan kentucky earlier in 2015 so there are three police departments from three separate states involved in the elsa porn arrest fantasy why do you think this has come up and harlan i don't know but harlan kentucky had actually they they're the ones that had issued the arrest the initial arrest warrant but they didn't actually engage in the full-scale photo shoot Mm -hmm. so then we went and to look at the full-scale photo shoot Put this in the show notes um
2: the it's a uh, it's on imgur which is a uh, photo posting site and it's
0: Sacalas
2: Photography. Sacalas photography and uh, we'll read the caption first tired of recent frigid temperatures police in Hanahan South Carolina jokingly arrested Elsa from Disney's Frozen cuz you know there's nothing funnier than being arrested right after she allegedly froze a fountain according to WCIV TV in Charleston event planning company Glass Slipper Productions no. staged the arrest which was <laughs> Captured on camera by Tommy Sackless of Sackless. Right. Yeah. So let's go through and I'm going to, I'm going to capture it. I am, I'm paying the emotional burden for this. Okay. Um, as the man and and the perceived her. So, so at first you see Elsa is, is, is there's
0: a kind of curvy Elsa.
2: Yeah. She's
0: yeah, very cute. She's blonde. Yeah, you know, she's, she's cute. cute. She's yeah. got a nice
2: long robe on. Then there's a cop looking very pleased to see this woman.
0: Right. Um, While she's casting a spell yeah. on a fountain. Yes the fountain's not is, the actually cop, is he a white guy oh there are two cops yeah. do you think they're I, white I, they, both they look pretty white Okay, be, uh, she's, and she's extremely white yeah. the, as Elsa I suppose is so
2: uh, Elsa is then still casting she looks she looks very afraid in a very oh my what did I do and then he is arresting her she's striking what looks like a childlike pouty face and then he has what are pink handcuffs that appear to be from a sex novelty shop
0: right it, they're not furry but they're they are not pink. furry but okay.
2: they, they certainly could be okay if we We can get closer. Elsa's there. The the police officer seems very pleased. And other people may have commentary about what that looks like. It looks like he he has got his gun loaded. Elsa goes on to strike a pose, which is very much, oh my, what have I done? She then strikes another childlike baby face pose. With her tits stuck pretty far out. Yep. Um, and the police officer looks even more pleased.
0: Pretty happy. Yeah. As this he is puts her into her car,
2: uh, she looks very supplicant, and he looks very She's supplicant. not resisting
0: arrest. We might mm-hmm. want to be pretty clear about that. Right.
2: And then, finally, she looks like she's very resigned at her arrest. And we, she's
0: being shoved into the car. Uh,
2: just to get to, to the point that we are not... Coming out of left field. The first uh, comment on this post is, is this porn? I'd watch this. Second is, I'd watch this porno. The third is, nice pink handcuffs. Third is, why are the handcuffs pink? (laughs) Fourth is, reminds me of porn. Um... And they go on to really talk about... Who's
0: playing Elsa? She is gorgeous. I'm embarrassed for everyone. Elsa's a big girl. Okay, yeah. So, oh, it was sloppy, the handcuffing, apparently? Yes.
2: Because there was apparently a cop fan. It says, (laughs) I shall... The the last one says, weird setup for porn. Hmm. So...
0: Turns out it's not a weird setup (laughs) for porn. Because we did some further internet research and discovered that actually, you know, Elsa being fuck is like kind of a trope in porn. And that takes place in a variety of, of forms. So there's like Elsa cosplay. There's anime Elsa. There's, Elsa. there's, there's weird cartoon animation, yeah. animation involving. There's, super uh, not Superman, Spider Man.
2: A huge kerfuffle last year. Uh, something that I discussed with um, friend of the pod Corey Pine about where there was a large posting of videos where um, there was children's characters like Elsa being put into sexual type of positions on children's YouTube channels where they were sexualizing Elsa. This has been going on for some years. The police being in a position of worrying about these types of things in a public safety manner are probably familiar with this. And that's what makes it so disturbing.
0: And so I did a quick search um, because it's minus 28 in Toronto today. And so that's what we do when we're at home um we record pods and do pornhub searches and there were 12 over 1200 videos on pornhub for elsa porn and then i don't know what fap zone means but um but there's a whole bunch of ones with that in the title and they all have like uh, one to producer, two million right. like one to two million views and so there's this guy with all right, enough
2: of
0: this enough. yeah uh, I don't really Okay, yeah. Anyway, you can go to Pornhub and, you know, check it out for yourself. But, or not. Well, or do it. So uh, I think it's so, but we sh- it should be, it, you know, we should be clear here about what we're what we're wondering about. Yeah? Playing out of a recipe. Well, I mean, yes. Yeah, <laughs> you want me to say it? This is obviously, uh, I think, elaborate? no, but I think just the, the fact that we've got, we did this, like, kind of brief yeah. internet forensic history of yeah. this trope, and then the associated, like, okay. pornography. So what,
2: Heidi, we thought that this was kind of uncontroversial. It seemed like a weird thing to do. Um, We know that police departments are, like, not full of PR people. They don't necessarily see the image. We've seen that in a lot of issues more serious than this. Um, But we thought that it was kind of uncontroversial. But to test that, we put the tweet that you made, which I thought was really elegant, in the the McLean Police Department thread. Fuck
0: page thread,
2: yeah. The first response we got was actually pretty telling about what had happened. Uh, And also we saw a number of people responding to it, you know, in a way that I didn't think was happening. I thought that there would be actually people saying, hey maybe it's not cool to have a young woman arrested for no reason or maybe it's not cool. Maybe this is a little weird. You know, maybe the pink uh, the pink handcuffs are a little creepy. Yeah, you know, Anything. In response to, to, to Heidi's tweet, there was a woman, um Let's say her name is Tori. Uh, said question mark question mark. That lady is crazy. Ha-ha.
0: Referring to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't see anything erotic about this. I see Elsa overacting to make it funnier because it's clearly a joke. They didn't even use a real person for the joke. Ha, 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 ha. That was one response. But there was any... There was more than 40 responses, all of them, which...
0: Bemoaning uh, my lack of humor? Yeah, that just not your
2: lack of humor, but yeah. the lack of humor or people like us. Right. But but they weren't... No one was actually addressing the, the issue at hand, which was the yeah. police state overstepping of power. Why is this such a big issue?
0: Uh, yeah, and I don't think... So, so we should be clear here. The police didn't actually overstep power in the sense that it was an actual arrest, right? This sort of ha, ha, funny, funny joke was being made against a backdrop of what we know is huge based on statistics we have. Of course, um, incidents are underreported, but a huge amount of state by police, um, police perpetrated sexual violence um, of women and others while in custody. And that violence disproportionately affects um, poor women and women of color, um, women who are drug addicted, or uh, engaged in sex work, etc. And vulnerable, so, Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're looking now just at, uh, you know, to get some stats for you guys who came up with CNN reports in October of, of last year that officers in the U.S. were charged with more than 400 rapes over a nine-year period. That seems to sort of, um, you know, obviously the instances are are much higher than that. On top of that, there's a very famous Holtzclaw case in the Oklahoma City Police Department where this individual was a police officer who was sort of uh, continuously and notoriously over several years against, I believe, exclusively African-American women perpetrating uh, acts of sexual violence and rape rape uh, while they were in his custody uh, and that we we also know that there was the police department itself engaged in a huge cover-up of, of that individual's behavior initially kind of telling a story where you know this guy was like a bad apple. Yeah. Um, and then it turns out that actually the police department had covered up what they knew about as being a longstanding uh, pattern of abuse on, on his part. And so, and this is not just the case in the United States. It's the case in Canada. It's the case all over the world. Amnesty International has reported on this. Um, it's been doing, I believe Amnesty Interna- uh, released its initial report about sexual misconduct in police custody in 1999. So that's 20 mm-hmm. years ago. This is something that's that's not new. It does tend to happen again uh, against the most vulnerable women, and so Blood we might, time. yeah, of course, and we might want to question. Then you know, would we have interacted this morning with you know this purported joke differently if it this has not been a snow queen? Yeah. But <laughs> it being some African queen or whatever, right? Like some other, you know, there. Yeah. If we change the move facts, move on. And it, is there any of these any other it would be would yeah. Have... If we had changed the facts a little bit, it would have. I think it would have been pretty clear, um, or maybe more clear, hopefully, to people how this is a problematic thing. And I want to point out too that like what we're doing, engaged in, and critique here is not at all a sort of standard meek to critique where it's like you can't make fun of rape. I mean, I think actually well, I think before we even get to that, yeah, okay.
2: I would I think we need to address the fact that why is it so problematic? Because why are these states important? Right. Want, yeah, I yeah. Want to get that. So Kentucky was the first to joke about it. South Carolina was the second to joke, and then and there was people from Illinois.
0: And then today, Illinois. Yeah. And what in do terms those states of, have in common? Yeah. So those states have in common um, the fact that consent to sexual interaction while women are in police custody can still serve as a valid defense to allegations of sexual assault. So sometimes that fact has been erroneously reported to say that it's just simply legal for police to have sex with people in custody. That's yeah. so, so that would be wrong. What we really need to, I need to, you know, be, be specific about that and say the situation is that in certain circumstances, it's available for police officers to claim that the individual in their custody had actually consented to the sexual, the sexual contact in question. That... In, is the case in i believe 35 states in it the united 35. states yeah, as last checked as last checked. as last checked that includes kentucky south carolina and illinois and so in other words you know if this had been a real case of a woman being arrested by a police officer who you know was looking all horny at the time yeah. that it would be open to that police officer to claim that she had consented to any sexual activity that actually um, ends up occurring. And I, so I think all of that is incredibly important background information when we're trying to establish, you know, what's funny, what makes us fu- it funny, and who's who's able to, you know, make those jokes. And I just, I mean, in general, I don't think the police um, as a as an institution, right, as an arm of the state, the hardest arm of the state when it comes to dealing with social, you know, <laughs> misbehavior, as we call it, uh, is really in a position to make to make jokes about putting women uh, in arrest, especially when those jokes are made in a, con- in a context that's highly sexualized um, on so many levels, right? So sexualized in a way that, uh, that addresses certain women, so very white, very blonde women addresses, as you said, an obvious children's cultural icon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one that
2: has been frequently sexualized. Across many mediums in recent times. I, and that's the thing, is that we, we have to just put that in that backdrop. These people are parents. You know, large parts, there's people who work in the civil service, have kids. That's normal. They're, they're usually cross represented in a way that is similar to other sort of fields. Um, they know about Elsa. They know about these weird videos online, yeah. and I'm sure some of them know about the things that they have on the It's not to be sex request. negative.
0: I don't really care if people jack it to Elsa, you know. I mean, but I, but, but I, I do I, care. But I think that there's a backdrop. Yeah, no, I think that the jacking it to Elsa sets the backdrop for a police department thinking it's funny to produce um, four years ago now and then re disseminate in the context of Me Too and Time's Up, not because, as everyone knows, I'm a huge fan of those movements. I'm not. But I think it's important to be able to make space for critique, notwithstanding my critique of the Me Too movement. In other words, it's important to be able to say that not all jokes are created equal today at all, especially when they concern the police. Um, so the, you know, the cops aren't, aren't really that funny. So what's our takeaway from this, honey? <laughs> Um I think it's I think it's interesting that it's this I think it's really interesting in the con in the context of me too where it's not possible to make a lot of jokes. And so one issue that I've been working on recently very briefly, an example of a professor who has been taken to task by a professional organization of which he was a member. Because he made a joke in a conference in a crowded elevator about, uh, basically he had been asked what floor do you want and he said I want the lingerie floor and he was actually disciplined by a professional body for making that kind of a joke. And I find it really interesting that, you know, <laughs> that kind of really heavy handed discipline is taking place in, in instances where we probably don't want it. And yet when it comes to actually talking about state behavior and police behavior, it's it, the, the general attitude is this just this is just a joke. Why are you making such a big deal? In other words, why are you kind of spoiling the yeah. fun for it? So like
2: where peers are involved, where people who have no power over another person, and I always make this point, is that power really matters. I know that Heidi agrees with this in, in this part. Like, for example, in this issue with the conference, it was two colleagues or, or people who were yeah. not even working at the same place. They just happened to be at the same conference. One person made the comment. The other person was offended. That's okay. I understand people feel offended. That's, that's what they're, they that's their right, I guess. Um, but there was no power of one person over the other. But in police custody, it's more complicated, particularly when consent can be used and considering when police misconduct cases are highly under prosecuted,
0: underreported under prosecuted. You know, (laughs) um, I think at this point, all, all sort of people acting in good faith would be right to be pretty suspicious of police and police power. And so there's a real effort to sort of rehabilitate the police in this arrest mode. And the rehabilitation is couched explicitly in this pornified sexualized mode and I just thought that was, you know, a really striking thing to note.
2: And so one quick question, and I want to get to this quickly because I think we're nearing the end of the segment mm-hmm. a lot of time. Can police be funny?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the cops can be funny if they're – if, if the cops are acting – one of the best students I ever had was actually a police officer. Mm-hmm. And I and, and he was actually very funny. And I thought – and I was – you know, I I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was at the time surprised by it. I do think police can be funny if they're being funny in a mode that explicitly undermines or makes fun of their role in society. Acknowledges you know? the power. Yeah, that somehow gestures to the power, and the gesturing to the power while inhabiting the power is totally cool. And I think segment when we talk to Mark Tushnet, it's going to be clear we have this sort of overriding theme of having a double consciousness, right, or, or a duality of being able to hold two positions or two contradictory thoughts in one's head at the same time. And I think you know be very cool for a cop to be like wow i have this role in society and it might be a necessary role but it's also completely messed up and here are the ways in which i can expose how it's messed up by making a joke and i don't think that that kind of critical move was taking place with this elsa arrest (laughs) i think that's an understatement but i
2: heidi that was really enjoyable i know that this has been a hot topic around the house and that's it's been an absolute pleasure and i hope that our listeners enjoyed it as well
0: ciao pump 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 get cash the